what I'd like to speak about this evening is faith, motivation, and vision. Now, one of the major differences between the Mahayana and Theravadan traditions of Buddhism is the emphasis that is given to faith and to motivation. You've probably all read and heard about the, you know, the ancient stories of yogis wanting to meditate and being made to hang out around the outside of temple gates for years and years before they were admitted to clean the rice and sweep the kitchen floor. And many of these stories that speak of the trials and tribulations and challenges that a person was put to before being able to meditate are, of course, one of the great features of the Mahayana tradition. They are not stories which in any way just belong to the past. They are very much alive today. I know for myself, when I first went to India to seek for a teacher, well, I didn't go to India to seek for a teacher, but when I got to India, I sought for a teacher. <laughs> and I uh, rather assumed that this was something of an automatic transaction, you know, like a little bit of like a fast food restaurant, you know, that you put in an order and got what you were looking for. And I remember, you know, very much going finding a place where I wanted to be and a person who I thought I wanted to study with. And just going and expecting, you know, that my choice would be sufficient to guarantee what I wanted. And when I asked to be accepted as a student, I was told basically he wasn't interested in teaching me. Um, this was rather bewildering to say the least. And every day for, I think, two months, I would go and say, you know, please, Geshe, please may I be your student? And he would say, no, go away. <laughs> and then after about two months, he gave me a box of noodles, and that was my admission ticket to the Dharma, <laughs> was a box of noodles I'd been accepted. And even then, of course, I thought, you know, well, now I've got my foot in the door. You know, next step is tantra practice. <laughs> and instead, I was really rather instructed to go away for years, a couple of years, actually, <laughs> to, <laughs> to undertake primarily a practice of reflection. I mean, there were a few other things thrown in, but actually it was mostly reflection. You know, 100,000 prostrations or so included, but mostly reflection. And one of the reflections I was asked to undertake for really, I think, a period of several months was about the preciousness of human life and the preciousness of being able to practice the Dharma. And the story that was used to illustrate this preciousness was that, you know, if a blind tortoise was swimming in the ocean and there was one golden ring floating on the ocean, and every hundred years the blind tortoise would swim to the surface, what would be the chances of it getting its head through the ring? They're not many. And this is also how rare it was, how rare an opportunity it was to be able to practice the Dharma. You know, you could try spending several months reflecting just on that story. And actually, it makes quite a profound impression. And then another, you know, long period of time was spent reflecting on the nature of compassion, what compassion was all about, what it would mean for me, for me, for anyone to live in a compassionate way. And the example there was used to reflect upon how I would treat, how I would wish to treat all sentient beings, all living beings, if I could think of them in the sense of a you know, in a cosmic way, at some point, probably every one of those ants and mosquitoes and snakes and all those other things had probably at some point been my mother. 
and how would I wish to treat them? This was okay for me. This was for Western Westerners. This was a terrible, they had a terrible struggle with this reflection because some people said they didn't like their mothers, you know. So it wasn't that easy for them to think in that benevolent way to our sentient beings. These reflections were very, they are and were very fundamental to the Mahayana tradition. And the purpose of those reflections was not to exercise the mind. It was not in order to, you know, have yet more thoughts and more ideas and more opinions. The purpose of those reflections was actually to clarify intention, to foster and to nurture dedication and perseverance and steadfastness and to nurture and foster willingness. The purpose of those reflections was also to begin to nurture a really vast sense of vision, a vast sense of possibility of what the Dharma, what the, med what the meditative process was really concerned with, that it wasn't actually concerned with personal perfection, that it wasn't actually concerned just with me managing to alleviate or to fix up my particular suffering and for me to have some terrific experiences that I could write home about. That the purpose of the Dharma and the heart of the Dharma was really directed towards the liberation of all beings and the end of all suffering and that one's vision for practice, deeply rooted in such a direction and such an understanding, meant also one's experience in the Dharma was also quite vast. The reflection was not to cultivate vision and also to cultivate profound faith in that vision that just as thousands of people before us have traveled this path and discovered profound and deep levels of peace and compassion and wisdom and awakening, so too is it possible for us to make the same discoveries, to awaken to the same revelations, to be liberated, to understand what freedom is about. Vision is about cultivating faith and trust, not just in the path, but also in ourselves. Faith and trust in our capacity to be fully awake and wise and compassionate beings. Reflection is a way of preparing the ground of laying the foundations, reflecting upon vision. It's a way of cultivating an inner readiness, an eagerness to learn, and a motivation of wholeheartedness that we can then bring to meditation. In my practice myself, I was actually not allowed to meditate for more than a year. And this is an interesting approach. You know, it, something happens to the consciousness. Now, in the Theravadan tradition, very little emphasis is actually given to any kind of prior preparation or reflection. No one in coming to retreat is asked to have a perfection of faith or necessarily to state in any way whether they have any vision whatsoever. No credentials are asked of anyone in coming to a retreat in this tradition. It is not because the value of faith and vision is dismissed or devalued in any way. Much more, I think, there is an open-handedness and an open-heartedness that actually does assume and I think very validly assumes that if we are prepared 
to give ourselves very fully to being present, to solitude, to being alone, to contemplative, to a contemplative way of being, then the faith and the motivation that is needed will actually grow through our own experience. And it's very easy to see both the pros and the cons within the, within the Mahayana tradition that through this very, very conscious and conscientious and careful cultivation of faith and vision, you know, one begins a practice very motivated, sometimes so glad <laughs> to be able to stop reflecting, you know, very motivated and very inspired and often possessing a grand sense of vision. And also that vision and the steadfastness so much alleviates the burden of doubt. You know, you've done that bit. Doubt's over. You know, you've done that bit. If you were going to doubt, you wouldn't have lasted. You know, so there's a way of alleviating that burden of doubt, which can be such an incredibly heavy burden in this journey. But I think it's also to see that, you know, obviously many potential great yogis are turned away and turned off simply because they feel ill-equipped, you know, feeling that they'll never have the right motivation or, or, or the right perseverance or the right dedication, and so feel excluded. But I do feel that in coming into this path without this prior reflectiveness and cultivation, it is very important that we are willing to understand the power that doubt has. Not so much just the power that doubt has, the doubt in the practice has, but the power that doubt in ourselves has. And how much of a need, great need there is for us to be able to trust and have faith not necessarily in the practice, because this is something that must come through your experience, not through someone else's view. But how incredibly important it, ha- it is to have faith and trust in yourself. Now, faith and motivation is something which constantly needs renewal. It is incredibly important in terms of deepening in meditation. Also understand that faith is really quite a difficult word for many Westerners. You know, if you come from a very religious background, faith has often been experienced as being rather oppressive, something that was imposed on you. Have faith. Believe in this. Believe in that. Believe in something outside of yourself. Faith was often, perhaps, if you come from a religious background, often even experienced as being rather oppressive. But it was always, or many times, separate from yourself. You know, and sometimes if you would, you know, have a rather tricky question about what was happening in the world or happening in the universe, you know, you would be told to have faith that there was something greater than yourself, outside of yourself, that was actually making sense out of all the conflict and the chaos, and all you had to do was believe. Sometimes that faith is actually very disempowering, because it is a feeling as if everything is in someone else's hands, and transformation has nothing to do with ourselves. So sometimes, many, you know, many Westerners come to meditation, they're so relieved, so relieved that no one is asked to have faith in anything. You know, you're not asked to believe in anything, and I think this is certainly a precious gift here. You know, you are not asked to believe in anything. In fact, there is much more of a tradition within this practice of being encouraged to doubt, encouraged to question, Encourage to have wise doubt, skillful doubt. For others who don't have necessarily come from a religious background, you know, you may not have any feeling for faith at all. 
You know, what does faith look like? What does it feel like? What does it do? Where do you find it? And, you know, when you're encouraged or perhaps hear the words of faith or trust, you know, you may find yourself looking inwardly to discover a little bit of faith, you know, or to find out what it looks like. And many times there is no answer forthcoming. There are times, too, when we are suspicious about faith because faith often does seem to concern someone or something else and not necessarily. We are rarely encouraged in our culture to have a deep and abiding and profound faith in ourselves. If faith is difficult for you, you know, if it's a word you have difficulty with, you know, you might find it more palatable to think in terms of trust. They are not different. Confidence. It plays a very crucial role in what happens for us in meditation in this journey. One of the major challenges that all of us encounter in this path is the challenge of doubt. Spiritual mythology is filled with stories of those who encounter doubt, that kind of ultimate level of doubt, you know, of who are you? What gives you authority just to be? In our encounters with doubt, We have probably experienced it as being one of the most paralyzing and debilitating of feelings that it is possible to have. Faith or trust is a quality from which strength and courage is founded upon. Faith is not about believing in something. In fact, I would say, that trust is actually the willingness to draw no conclusions. This is the most profound expression of trust in our own being, is to have the willingness to draw no conclusions, to remain in a place of unknowing with the greatest of confidence, without fear, is the most profound expression of trust in our own being. That is very difficult, to remain in a place of unknowing. We see how many times our mind is so ready and so eager and at times so desperate to jump out of that place of unknowing into a place of knowing. When you sit and you walk, how often much of the commentary of our minds, so many of the words and so many of the concepts, so much of the noise is the desperation of the mind to stay in a place of knowing, to avoid and to flee from a place of unknowing. Through our words and our commentary and our chatter, we make the world familiar to us by having labels, by having descriptions, by having judgments. We make ourselves known in a particular way to ourselves through a label, (coughs) through an idea, through a concept. We are able to say, I am, you are, this is. In a way, it feels like there's so much contentment or so much safety within those labels. It is an incredible challenge to stay in a place of not knowing, of unknowing. It's a place of, it is a place without boundaries. It's a place without fences, a place without definitions, a place without conclusions. It's a place of learning. It's a place of the most profound openness. We can be eager to compartmentalize the world through our labels. 
but we are limited. Our experience is then limited to those labels. Faith is actually what allows us to rest in not knowing, is what allows us to let go of our concepts and our conclusions, to let go of the descriptions of what I am. It is a rather specific quality of trust that is needed. Now, not all qualities of faith or trust are necessarily helpful to us. We need to consider when we come to this path, we are often looking for change. Sometimes we're desperately looking for change. Sometimes we come to this journey and this exploration from a place of crisis or being wounded or hurt in our lives. And we're looking for answers. We're looking for ways out of conflict, for ways out of ignorance. And the great temptation is to look for someone or from something outside of ourselves for those answers, for those solutions and for that healing to happen. We see at times the way in which we might look for something that has power, or that seems to have certainty, or gurus, or placing or projecting particular authority in people or guides. We see at times a way we actually seek, or there's a great temptation to seek for heroes or for heroines to admire and to look up to and emulate and aspire to. Something, we look for perfection. We look for perfection. And in the spiritual path, you know, there is such an abundance, it seems, of perfection. Practices and people and traditions and techniques are placed upon pedestals and made holy, sacred above all else, and separate from us. They seem to be unmarred by perfection, and they seem to become a model for us to aspire to. Models aren't necessarily imposed upon us. At times they are invited because we don't know how to trust in ourselves or trust in our own capacity to discover our own inner authority. The difficulty with this quality of faith, it is not that it is all wrong, it is wonderful at times to feel a genuine kinship, an intimacy with a guide, with a path, with a teaching. The difficulty comes when we project our own desire for perfection upon people or upon things. Because the degree of perfection that is projected is the degree of pain we experience when, of course, imperfection is discovered. And I say, of course. Whenever we look outwardly or upwardly, seeking for experts or for authority or for, for solutions, the great tendency is to become deafened to ourselves, to forget how to listen inwardly. And, of course, in these traditions which really emphasize the need for for intense devotion and surrender, the diff difficulty comes, of course, when doubt arises, it's often seen to be your problem. You know, if it's doubt, it's something wrong with you. It's too easy in our world to surrender discriminating wisdom. It's simply too easy to feel that all is my fault. That if I was more accepting and more generous and more loving, there would be no problem that rightness or that righteousness or that perfection is somebody else's territory. Now, it is many times helpful to have trust and faith in different paths and in different guides. It must come through our own experience. But whatever faith and whatever trust arises in a tradition, in a path, in a form, in a person, it must always be accompanied by a similar level of inquiry. 
to be aware of not falling into the trap of looking for someone to fix us. Not looking for prescriptions, not looking for medication. The Dharma is intended to be liberating and empowering. It is not necessarily meant to be soothing. (laughs) We also, I think, really need to appreciate at times how powerful is the desire to belong and the desire for approval. In the, spirit, in the human psyche. And so sometimes, I don't know, I, I sometimes think that everybody needs to be a convert at least once in their life before they discover the wisdom of not being a convert. It is too easy, you know, to think of adopting a spiritual identity, a spiritual life, and to do it really well and to have so much kind of investment projected into it that we can end up just going through the motions and really losing that sense of the vitality of this path which is about awakening. You know, there's that wonderful story of, of, uh, about the bear. You know, there was this bear that was once captured from the forest and taken to a circus. And, you know, it was very sad to be taken to this circus. But after a while, it learned that in this circus, in order to be fed, it had to learn to perform. So the bear learned to perform a lot of tricks, you know, somersaults and dancing and and begging. And every time it did something right, it would be given food and rewarded and applauded. And And after a while, this became the bear's life. This became the norm. It thought this was what all bears did. And then one day, someone left the cage door unlocked, and the bear got out and went for a walk and went back to the forest and wandered deeper and deeper into the forest. And the sun rose the next day, and the bear was hungry. Inessa started doing tricks. Inessa begged, performed cartwheels, you know, danced, did somersaults. And these other bears came out to it and said, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> these bears said, well, I'm waiting to be fed. You know, this is what bears do, I'm waiting to be fed. And the other bears said, you dummy. If you want to be fed, you have to learn how to feed yourself. Faith is important in this journey. Not the faith of looking upwardly and looking outwardly and not blind faith. What is emphasized certainly in Buddha's teaching is the skill of combining trust with the development of motivation. That these two are actually really inseparable. Now motivation is something of a chameleon for us. It's something that changes constantly according to our own experience, according to our own understanding. Now, most of us, when we come to this path, we are motivated on some level by some dissatisfaction. Sometimes it's lukewarm and sometimes it's a crisis. We want to be free of discontent. We want to be free of pain, of limitation. Sometimes, too, we come to this journey already with some vision, Intuitively, we understand that it is possible for us to know very profound levels of wisdom and compassion, of awakening, of being (coughs) conscious. Now, when we are motivated by dissatisfaction, whether it's lukewarm or whether it's intense, these are the times often when we do and are tempted to set up agendas of personal change. Now, understandably, this is our initial motivation in this practice. Personal change. We're not here to change anybody else. You know, we're not interested in changing our parents necessarily until after we've changed ourselves. We're not interested necessarily in in radically altering the world necessarily or, or hopefully later. We are interested often in personal change to be a different kind of person. We have some ideas about this. Everyone has ideas about this. We'd like a little more of some things and a little less of others. 
This is the more and less time in this journey. A little more love, a little more generosity, a little more sensitivity, a little more compassion would be nice, and a little bit less of the greed and the anger and the confusion and the delusion. <clears throat> we're looking for personal change, and sometimes we're looking for improvement. That's quite understandable. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing to be judged or blamed about this. But then we do need to understand that at times we begin this quest on the basis of looking at what is wrong. Looking at what is wrong with ourselves. When our motivation is linked to personal agendas, then faith tends to be a very tenuous thing. Sometimes faith is terrific when things seem to be fitting in with our agendas. You know, when the mind is calm, when there is clarity, when there are feelings of connectedness, when the body is at ease, when we feel some sense of peace, no, ever, no matter how slight, oh, the faith. You know, what a wonderful path. You know, this could go on forever, you know. We start thinking about three-month courses and caves and going to the east and, you know, all these things. You know, the faith is just shining forth. It's linked to a signpost of personal change. And needless to say, it dissolves as quickly as the experiences dissolve. When the, we then have experiences of being chaotic, confused, muddles, the, the hindrances, then our faith is overwhelmed by doubt. And then those, you know, those age-old questions come, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? You know, it all made sense before, and now it makes no more sense. I ought to be on vacation. You know, all these questions arise. Doubt arises as quickly as faith arose when it is linked simply to experience and especially when it is linked to judgment of our experience. <clears throat> when motivation is linked to personal change, the desire for personal change, signposts become too important. Signposts simply become exaggeratedly important. In a way, when we come into this path, we would like a kind of carefully planned out map with special signposts. You know, this would be the sort of ultimate security in meditation. You know, if we said, yes, on day one, we would like you to be able to follow two breaths in a row. Wonderful, here's your certificate. On day two, four, please, you know. On day three, you will have less pain here and more of this. In a way, it would be a wonderful thing to come into a meditation retreat, you know, and have it listed on the board exactly what should happen, when, what it looks like, you know, and the rewards that are offered. In a way, it would be so comforting. Instead, you know, you don't get anything. You know, nobody ever says, nobody ever says to you, you know, you're doing this wrong. I mean, sometimes it'd be a relief to have someone say to you, I'm doing it wrong, at least I could figure out how to fix it. And nobody ever says you're doing it right. You know, so you are left with not knowing. There are no signposts here, but never mind, the mind gets busy and makes its own. <laughs> You are not going to be left without signposts for long. The mind is right in there. That's a good sitting. That's a bad sitting. You know, I'm a little bit better than yesterday. Oh, no, now I'm worse. Oh, they have a much better walking style than I do. You know, the mind gets in there with its signposts. It's making its own map. It's making its own map. And it's, of course, every signpost has a companion of a judgment. Have you noticed? Every signpost is a setup for failure. Every signpost is accompanied by the possibility of judgment. But those signposts are offering us some level of safety, of knowing, of knowing, of being able to say, I know. 
Those signposts are somehow alleviating the enormous anxiety of not knowing. If you measure yourself by any signposts, you are measuring yourself by judgment. And you will end up swinging between extremes of despair and elation, progress and regression, success and failure. These are unnecessary dualities to have in this path. They are created through our own demand for knowing and through the signposts that then we create. Now, faith is, as I've mentioned, it is important. It is something to carefully nurture. It is not separate from experience, but it is not dependent upon experience. And this is a major difference. The faith that is truly important in this journey is a faith that is much more substantial than a faith that is just founded upon experiences of gain and loss or of success and failure. It's really not possible to have profound faith without vision. Now, vision. This whole scenario we do here, this whole path, this whole journey is founded upon vision. Now, the vision is about what the essence of this teaching is. Vision is about understanding, actually, the heart of this teaching. Now, the heart of this teaching is not about perfection. It's not about being a good breather. It's not about having a good walking style. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. And the heart of this teaching, the essence of this teaching, is actually about freedom. It is actually about freedom. It's about liberation. It is about awakening. Not about gaining freedom. Not about progressing towards liberation. But rather awakening to that which is with us already. Awakening to the essence of our own being. Awakening to what it means actually to be liberated, to be free from all conditioning, to see the end of ignorance, to understand the truth, the nature of the unconditioned. The practice actually shows us the way to let go and the way to open to what is already present in this moment. Now, sometimes that's difficult to accept or to accommodate. You know, when we hear these statements, yes, that freedom is right here, that truth is lies within this moment, that underneath the kind of murkiness of our minds lies an, an awareness which is radiant and unmarred and unmarked. Sometimes it's hard to take that too seriously. When our moment-to-moment -moment experience feels to be one of being confused or hooked into one mind state or another, it's hard at times to trust that in and through all that murkiness lies an awareness that is crystal clear, that is untouched by personality hiccups, that's dis totally disinterested in improvement. We cannot measure in any way the worth of a single sitting. You cannot measure in any way the worth of a single walking. There's simply no measurement that is possible you to use to evaluate progress in this path. It's not possible to measure insight. And I have never encountered anyone in this journey who moved in a predictably linear manner from ignorance to enlightenment. It's not possible to measure the value of a single sitting or a single moment that we approach dedicated to sensitivity and dedicated to being aware. We can't measure the way in which that dedication contributes to the peace and the well-being in our world, nor can we measure the way in which it contributes and fosters wisdom within ourselves.
we have to learn to be willing not to measure, to let go of the measurements. There's a story of a sadhu in Rishikesh who lives by a waterfall in a very simple manner, and people come from all over the country to hang around because they admire this sadhu so much. His practice is very simple. Every morning, he just gets up and watches the waterfall all day long. And at the end of the day, he bows and says, well done, and goes to bed. There's nothing special happening here. And sometimes, quite frankly, I actually feel that same way, you know, about what you do here, about what you all do here. I know, you know, we know that sometimes you sit and there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of pain and a lot of conflict and a lot of confusion. And you sit there. This is admirable. This is wonderful. You know, this is something remarkable. You know, most of our culture is out drowning this mind, subduing it. I think it is remarkable. We can't measure what is happening through that simple dedication to be present, to be awake in that moment, to be present without promises and without guarantees. Now, sometimes it might be useful to reflect a little bit on what difference it would make to begin every sitting and every walking with a commitment to freedom. This is the most amazing exploration. With a commitment to not knowing, with a commitment to innocence, to begin every sitting and every walking with a commitment to be not entangled in any label, in any conclusion, in any description about ourselves in any way, simply to let go, to let go of the concepts, the judgments, the labels, the definitions, and in that to let go of all notions of improvement and progress. They do go together. They do go together. But to begin every sitting, every walking, with a commitment to being entangled nowhere, with a commitment simply to freedom, to be caught in no model, you know what that does? It means that we do not define ourselves by our judgments. When we don't judge our experience, nor do we define ourselves by our judgments. We see it doesn't mean that predictable and familiar patterns of mind don't arise, but they are seen in a slightly different light, a radically different light, when they are not mean, not me and not mine. I mean, you can think of, you know, about this. I mean, you know, you, you, you probably all have a pet, a pet tendency, you know. Might be self-hatred, you know, or judgment, or greed, you know, or some way that you beat yourself. I mean, to think, you know, of being able to greet that with a sense of, this is not me. I mean, it's terrific news, you know. <laughs> this is, you know, <laughs> emptiness is not bad news, you know. <laughs> it's actually really liberating, you know, not me. Wow, you know, not me. Well, if this is not me, then who am I? This opens up a whole other level of inquiry. There is a place for doubt. There is a place for doubt, but not doubt that's inspired by signposts or judgments. But every moment of true doubt is actually a moment of questioning and a moment of inquiry. Every moment of true doubt is actually creative, incredibly creative. Because true doubt returns us to ourselves, to question what we are committed to, what is meaningful for us, what do we value, what do we honor. The only place to turn to in moments of doubt is to ourselves and to this moment and to our capacity to learn from it. This may not seem to offer us a lot, but this moment is our wisest teacher and offers us everything that we need for transformation. Now, faith is something that needs constantly nurturing and renewing, because in this practice and in this journey, the, all of us meet our demons. 
We meet our shadows and we meet our valleys. We meet moments when we struggle terribly, moments of resistance, moments of grasping, moments of being lost and fearful, moments of not knowing. Every time we let go, we enter a moment of not knowing. Faith is needed to make the passage from knowing to not knowing. Actually, every time we undertake a sitting or a walk, every time we undertake a, a retreat, we make that journey from knowing to not knowing, to what is unknown. We don't know what will unfold. There are no guarantees. There is no predictability. Every time we let go of our props and our controls and our habits, we make that same journey from knowing to what is not known. And in that passage from what is known to what is not known, fear is a companion to that passage. Fear is a companion. It requires a deep level of faith and trust to have the courage to stay open to the shadows and to the demons and to the fears, rather than to fixing them or hiding from them or trying to solve them, but just to stay open, to trust that we are vast enough, that our awareness is vast and open enough to embrace with compassion all of the demons that arise. This is the level of trust that is really necessary. Strategies won't do it. Trust is actually what allows us to let go, to open and to be present. I'd like to read you a, a story from Milarepa, who I also mentioned last night. Milarepa was a grand Tibetan sage in the grand tradition. You know, he lived at really one of those people who lived in a cave. And mostly lived on nettles. He was very famous for living on nettles. He was also very famous for his wisdom. And one day Milarepa's mind was, uh, Milarepa was very happy and blissful and he went out to collect some wood for his cave. And when he arrived back in his cave, he found in the cave seven demons with bodies the size of thumbs and eyes the size of cups. Some were making fire, some were bringing water, some were grinding grain, and some sat performing various magical tricks. As soon as Milarepa saw the demons, he was terrified. He didn't know what to do. How could he get rid of them? He looked for help outside. He tried to say a mantra. He tried to perform a gaze. He tried to arouse his deity's presence. But he was unable to pacify the demons. And he thought, aha, maybe these are the local demons of this place. I've been here for a long time, and I've never connected with them. I've never praised them or given them thanks. So he thought, perhaps this is a way of evicting the demons. And he talked to them about how wonderful their place was and how grateful he was to be there. And he tried to be friends with the demons, and he said to them, you know, why don't you accept this friendship and then be gone? <laughs> well, it worked slightly. Three of the demons who were performing magic went away. But Milarepa was still unable to make the other four go away. And realizing that the four demons were magical obstacles, he tried another strategy. He talked about how wonderful he was. You know, all the things he'd done the way he'd you know, spent time in solitude and roamed the mountains, how he was afraid of nothing. He was a great yogi. And he said to them, you know, you don't intimidate me. You don't frighten me. He said to them, it's wonderful that you demons came today. Well, you must come again tomorrow. From time to time, we should converse. <laughs> well, three of the demons vanished, but the remaining demon performed an imposing dance, and Milarepa thought, this is one very vicious and powerful demon. <laughs> so he spoke to the demon about the Dharma 
about the self-evident nature of the Dharma. He said, if the Dharma was not true, you, no, sorry. He said, look at the nature of the Dharma. You can see what the teaching is. It is true. Everything about it is truthful. He said, the Dharma is something that cannot be broken. And he said to them, said to the last demon, demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. We'll talk out our differences. For you, I offer myself. And with friendliness and compassion and without concern for himself, Milarepa placed himself at the mouth of the demon. But the demon could not eat him and vanished like a rainbow. In our practice, we offer ourselves. And in a way, we surrender with compassion and with wisdom. And we discover it's true that our awareness, that who we are, is actually vast enough and open enough and compassionate enough to embrace all demons. Trust and faith is like a seed within us. We learn to nurture it by simply returning to it. There is no need for a shortcut by simply returning to it. We return to trust as we return to ourselves, trusting in our capacity for openness, to receive our capacity of awareness. May all beings live with vision. May all beings live with inspiration. May all beings live with trust. If we have Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.